on-demand coverage. This is the PFT PM Podcast. And now, your host, Mike Florio. All right, we're getting right to it. April 26th, draft day edition of the PFT PM Podcast. Wanted to do it a little earlier than usual so you have something to digest before the draft gets rolling 8 p.m. Eastern Thursday night. Usually, the PFT PM Podcast, something for you to consume after the day has slowed down, not just as it's starting to get heated up. So this is a little bit different than usual, but PFTPM Posse has spoken. It is a strong and influential lobby, and I decided to go ahead and do something. I'm going to fly through a five-down territory and then get to your questions. I put out the Batusi call for questions not too long before we got started because I have a feeling there will be a lot of questions and I've realized the sooner that I start after, obviously, fewer questions. If I give you like three hours, there'll be like 3,000 questions. So I want to be able to get to everyone's questions is basically what I'm saying. So I know that some may be like, hey, man, you didn't give me enough time to ask a question. Well, then I wouldn't have gotten to your question. So either way, somebody's always going to be upset, which is fine. Somebody's always upset based upon the first overall pick, regardless of who takes it, Browns or anyone else. We still don't know what the Browns are going to do. The evidence continues to mount that it will be Baker Mayfield. I've seen reports all day long pointing to Mayfield, 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 Mayfield. Unless the Browns are deliberately doing it to catch everyone off guard. And my understanding is that the Josh Allen stuff was being pushed by the Browns as basically sport just to add to the drama, the mystery, the intrigue. They liked the idea. My understanding is that so many people were saying Josh Allen when it apparently is going to be Baker Mayfield, unless it's going to be somebody else. And the Browns are just messing with us at this point. Mayfield makes sense. He was for those of you who listened yesterday and who have seen the only PFT mock draft of the year. Mayfield, the number one guy. And I think, if I recall correctly, Mel Kuyper made Baker Mayfield the number one pick in his latest mock draft, which means Mel doesn't want to be wrong. I don't know how many versions Mel Kuyper and Todd McShay did of a mock draft, but see, you've got a little cottage industry that emerges in this whole process of mock draft. We got this mock draft and that mock draft and this version and that version and this version they're taking this guy and in that version they're taking that guy and it makes me go crazy. And I know I used to be part of that, but it's just useless. We don't need an artificial template for justifying our discussion points. We can discuss things. We discussed plenty over the past several months. And wisdom often never comes at all. I'm glad it came late, and I'm glad I waited until late to do the only mock draft. Because I'm not going to say we were ahead of the curve, but I think we are ahead of the curve. As it relates to putting your name on paper and attaching your name to Mayfield number one. There were just hints and whispers and maybe and leaning and conversations and whatnot. We put name to paper, Mayfield number one, and it's looking like that's going to happen. And if it doesn't, just forget everything I just said. Josh Allen, the news that emerged overnight regarding the tweets from when he was in high school. And look, they're offensive. They're inappropriate. What do you do to someone who had offensive and inappropriate tweets when they were in high school. I've heard people say, well, wait a minute. If you're advising folks to scrub their Twitter account before they are about to step onto a major platform, you're essentially saying it's okay to be racist as long as you hide it. I don't know what's in anyone's mind or heart. And I know that the things we do are evidence of who we are. I just don't know that a kid who's 15 or 16, the things he says or does, or she, I don't know how 
much of a bright line you can draw between what they say and who they are. I think a lot of kids don't know who they are at 15 or 16. A lot of kids are mixed up. A lot of kids are pretending to be someone other than who they are because they don't yet know who they are. And who they seem to be is something that they are pretending to be for the benefit of someone else. You want to impress someone. You want to look like a tough guy. You want to be the funny guy. And you don't have the benefit of knowledge, experience, wisdom to know what you should and shouldn't do. And you need to have people in your life. And I'm not saying Josh Allen didn't. I think part of the problem is the technology is always ahead of the parents. And fortunately, when it comes to Twitter, I was ahead of the technology before my kid had his own Twitter account. And I was able to explain to him over and over again, look, you're trying to get a rise out of your buddies Try to make somebody laugh. Try to blow off steam. Don't do it there. Don't do it there. Because, number one, it's permanent. Number two, it can be misconstrued. I don't know how many total tweets Josh Allen posted when he was in high school. If this were the only ones he posted, it'd be one thing. If they're four or five out of 50,000, it's another thing. But I just think that Whenever we see something like this, I mean, I always go back to what, what do we want to have happen? Should he be shunned by the NFL for something he said when he was 15 or 16? Should his price be public shaming? Should he drop in the draft? What should it be? I don't know what the consequence should be. Is it enough consequence that we all now know that he was a dumb blockhead kid who was tweeting things he shouldn't tweet. And again, I'm reluctant to judge someone's heart and soul. I don't think any of us can do that based upon a glimpse of what may have been his worst moments when he was that age. It's impossible to know. So anyway... The more fascinating point from my perspective is that it came out when it came out and that we now know about it and that it's now out there. Was there a concerted effort? Was there a plan? Did someone know about this and shine a light on it deliberately? in order to make Josh Allen look bad in the hopes of fueling a slide. And the universe of possibilities is fairly narrow. One, a team that wants Josh Allen to slide deliberately gets this out there so that he will slide and so that that team will be able to draft him. Two, an agent representing a rival, another quarterback, whoever the case may be, representing someone else in the draft pool, wanting that player to be taken higher than Josh Allen. Number three, an old friend, an old enemy, someone he thought was a friend who secretly was an enemy, somebody who is settling a score with Josh Allen. Or four, it just happened. Somebody poking around his Twitter page, scrolling back through old tweets, searching tweets, whatever. I don't know how you go back and find old tweets. Sort of scrolling through the page, down, 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 over and over and over again. But there's a chance somebody was just curious. Somebody went down the Twitter rabbit hole and found that. Whatever the reason, whatever the motivation, whether it was intentional or whether it just kind of happened, it happened because the tweets were available. And that's the other side of this that I think merits some consideration. Why are the tweets still out there? It's one thing to do the stupid thing to put those tweets into existence. It's another thing to allow them to continue to exist. 
And I think the message to anyone out there who represents any of these kids, if it wasn't already part of your process of screening the kid, helping the kid, ensuring that the kid is clean, I'd like to think we already would have been at the point where we know social media accounts probably should be investigated and eradicated if need be. And Josh Allen's represented by CAA, one of the biggest firms out there. So if this can slip through their five hole, it can slip through anyone's five hole. Now, you know, I've been arguing for weeks that it's always better to have a good agent than to have no agent at all. Situations like this, people are going to say, well, what's the point of having an agent if your agent's not going to tell you to go back and clean up your social media accounts? That's part of the the wisdom that you would expect to get from your agency. That part of it happened, right? You can think whatever you want about whether or not the agent should have intervened, investigated, whatever. What happened once it became known was a fairly intense effort by CAA to fix it. I wrote something about this because I thought it was weird Why is Stephen A. Smith interviewing Josh Allen in the middle of the night? 2 a.m. phone call from Josh Allen. Why is Stephen A. Smith the person who was selected to be given the explanation from Josh Allen and to basically speak in lieu of Josh Allen because CAA realized probably not a good idea to put this kid out there on an island to have to explain these things in his own voice. I enjoyed talking to him last Friday, but it was clear to me, he's a young kid. He gets a little rattled. He can be a little unsure of himself when it's time to speak. And part of that is a function of being young and overwhelmed. Kid from a small town, went to a relatively small college, at least, you know, Division I or FBS school, but not covered like a major college power, not like a USC or a UCLA, not a lot of media experience. You don't throw him out there because even though there's a chance he makes it better, there's an even better chance he makes it worse. So you handpick a guy like Stephen A. Smith who gets the benefit of being the one who is tied to the story. Hey, they called Stephen A. Smith. They called me. They talked to me. They told me the story. You're more likely to be sympathetic to the story, sympathetic to the excuse, sympathetic to the explanation, if you're the one who is handpicked to provide it, making that likelihood even greater if CAA also represents you. That makes you more likely to feel like you're part of the team. And CAA has helped you because CAA could have picked anyone to be the spokesperson de facto for Josh Allen, they picked another CAA client, a person with a platform that would be heard and seen on Thursday morning on one of the networks that covers the draft. And that's one of the benefits of having CAA. If Josh Allen were self-represented and had to clean this mess up on his own, what would have happened? What would have happened? He opens his door and there's a bunch of people sticking a microphone in his face and they're asking him aggressive questions and he says something dumb and they ask another question and he says something even dumber and then another question is asked and he says something even dumber than that and the next thing you know, you really have dug a hole. So there was mobilization here. There was coordination here. CAA cashed in on its relationships. Shefty. CAA client on first take saying, my understanding is the tweets had been deleted back in January, which implies not so subtly that CAA intervened and said, hey, Josh, as we begin this process of preparing you for the draft, let's get rid of those old offensive tweets containing racially charged language. The only problem is that's not what happened. Ryan Glassbeagle, the big lead, spoke to the guy from Yahoo who wrote the story about the tweets and 
they were still live. They were still in existence as of last night. And one last thing, too, and this is what causes me to think, two factors that caused me to think this wasn't something that, that was planned. First, the writer who found these and wrote about them is a blogger at Yahoo Sports that isn't a big name, right? This wasn't handed. Now, maybe that's the genius of it. It removes any and all fingerprints. But the idea that it was given to someone relatively obscure tends to suggest that it, it didn't happen at, at the behest of someone who was trying to cause Josh Allen to slide. And the other thing is this, if it was done deliberately, why the hell did they do it when they did it? Why do you do it overnight? You do it at a time when there isn't an opportunity to fix it, like the Laramie Tunsil gas mask bong video. You do it at 7.30, 7.45. You do it just as the Browns are going on the clock. Now, maybe by then it's too late to turn it around if the Browns are going to take him, but I don't think they were going to take him anyway. And there are going to be people who say, well, the Browns would have taken Josh Allen until this this issue occurred. I, I, I don't think the Browns were going to. Now, if they were going to, that becomes an interesting question. Would they have changed their minds? I don't think they were going to. Odell Beckham apparently has changed his mind. Remember the report that he's not going to set foot on the field until he gets a new contract? He was out on the field. Now, it wasn't full speed. It's not going to be full speed for a while. It was individual drills. He had coverage, but he's out there on the field, foot on field, helmet on, catching passes. Pat Shermer, very happy to see him out there. Still hovering over all of this, are they going to pay him what he wants? Are they going to kick the can into next offseason and apply the franchise tag and trade him out from under that? Will they sign him to a long-term deal with the franchise tag in place? What will they do with Odo Beckham Jr.? He's earned his new contract. He's wanted his new contract. He broke a leg while hoping to get his new contract. Will he take a stand or will he play for $8.5 million this year and hope that this gets resolved one way or the other in 2019? Or could he still be traded? I still think that until the Giants pay him, until he signs a contract, which presumably would consist of enough money to make him willing to sign the contract, he could be traded. So keep an eye on that. The Jerry Richardson story had a development today. I don't know that this is an ideal day. I don't know anything about discussions, negotiations, planning that went into SI.com publishing a first-person account from one of the people who worked for the Panthers and who received a settlement and as part of that signed a confidentiality agreement. I don't know why today is the day. That doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me because I don't know how much traction it gets today. It gets more traction on a slow Monday after the draft ends. Maybe... Monday, May the 8th, May the 7th, let the draft end and get through it, because I don't think you're going to see a lot of discussion on Fox, ESPN, or NFL Network tonight about the new developments as it relates to Jerry Richardson. He's already committed to selling the team. He's closing in on selling the team. The timing of the release of this just, there's always a specifically engineered date and time for going with a story like this. Once they persuaded the alleged victim or actual victim, I don't know how to use it here because nothing was ever proven because nothing was ever officially alleged in court. But the person who reached a settlement agreement with the Panthers, with Jerry Richardson, I don't know how it all came to be that she was willing to tell her story, but SI.com surely had some sort of a hand in this. And I don't know why today is the day. I don't think that today makes sense. I don't think it's maximum benefit 
maximum bang, maximum demonstration of the power of SI.com as an investigative body. I think it gets less noticed now than it would later. Now, a couple of things as it relates to what the person said. You're going to hear, I think, some people try to compare this to the Stormy Daniels situation they may have heard of once or twice or a thousand times over the past couple of months. The NDA, the non-disclosure agreement, and when it's appropriate to breach an NDA. There's a fundamental difference between the NDA, the non-disclosure agreement, in the President Trump Stormy Daniels case and the Jerry Richardson case. With Trump and Stormy Daniels, the whole purpose of the payment was to get secrecy. It wasn't to resolve any potential legal claims. There's no suggestion that President Trump did anything inappropriate to Stormy Daniels. This is payment for silence. In the Richardson case, the NDA, the confidentiality agreement, that is standard practice in almost any litigation or threatened litigation where there's a payment made to settle claims. See, the payment in Richardson's case was made to resolve the legal claims arising from his behavior. And as part of it, you don't want to pay this person a lot of money and then let that person go tell their story and embarrass you and also say, oh, by the way, they gave me X thousand dollars. And the business reason for that, for demanding confidentiality as a routine practice in cases like that, you don't want to create the impression that you're an easy mark who will give in anytime anyone threatens anything. It's not about secrecy of the conduct as much as it's about secrecy of the fact that payment was made and that it was X thousand dollars. And then anyone that's got any beef with Jerry Richardson thinks, hey, let's go eat. We can go get free money by making exaggerated, embellished, and or fabricated claims. That's why as a standard practice in litigation and I think just about every civil lawsuit that I was involved in, other than like automobile accidents, because nobody really cares about whether or not people know the amount of a payment made to settle an injury claim, but anything involving allegations of workplace misconduct, discrimination, wrongful hiring, wrongful firing, wrongful anything, unless it involved a public entity that is subject to Freedom of Information Act requests where that information has to come out. Unless it involved that, it was a standard part of the settlement discussion. So to the extent that when you see NDA, because I have a feeling before Stormy Daniels, NDA wouldn't have been the term used. I think there's a subtle effort here to make this seem like there's something unsavory and unseemly about the mere existence of the NDA. And I like the argument that because Bob McNair... The owner of the Texans was vouching last month for Jerry Richardson and downplaying the claims and suggesting that Jerry Richardson had talked to his fellow owners about the claims, that that somehow breaches the NDA. But the NDA was already breached. That was one of the points I made back in December when this all happened. It's like, you know what, at the heart of this, not that any of this makes Richardson's conduct appropriate, but he engaged in an arm's length transaction, paying money to people to resolve their claims. And part of the benefit of the bargain was that they weren't going to talk about it. And somebody breached that. And again, this wasn't a contract simply meant to buy silence. This was a contract meant to buy peace. And part of the peace is silence. So, and I think it's okay. And I think it's possible. I think it's not mutually exclusive. You can say, all right, if the guy did something he shouldn't have done, he should have to settle the case. And also say, once he pays the money to settle the case, he has rights too. He has a right to his benefit of the bargain. He has a right to expect that people won't be talking to reporters about it. And that's tough to get reporters to understand. It's almost like the issue with whoever leaked the secret recordings, made the secret recordings and leaked the secret recordings from the league meeting with the players last October. Reporters just want information. They don't care how they get the information. They just want the information. There's nothing wrong with that. But sometimes the way you get the information 
there's a deeper issue there. And it's okay for reporters or people who generate opinions to say, I'm not so sure that, that this is something that people should be feeling proud of. I've obtained a secretly recorded meeting audio. I've obtained information from someone who has a confidentiality agreement that was signed as part of a commitment by Jerry Richardson to pay thousands of dollars. There's a point where it's... And I think it's okay to feel like... I don't know how I feel about getting the information that way. But I agree that certain things have to come to light. It's just a shame that it comes to light by someone who could have filed suit, could have exposed all of this, and if that person wants all of this to come out, should have. I mean, let's think about it this way. Somebody did something to someone that was wrong. Jerry Richardson did something that was wrong. At some point, the person had a decision to make. It's just like, let's make a deal. Door number one, door number two. Door number one, take him to court and let it all out in the open. Let it all be hashed out and everyone will know what Jerry Richardson did. And that will be part of his punishment, to be embarrassed and shamed by the things that he did. That's door number one. Door number two, you can take this payment and in return for the payment, you can never talk about this. It's door number two. Chose door number two. And now the person's trying to have door number two and door number one. All of door number two and some of door number one. That's why it makes me uncomfortable. Because the moment to decide to take a stand and tell your story and expose this person, that was before you take the money. And one of the reasons you go to court is for the hope of getting justice in the form of cash. If you get your justice up front, part of what you give up is the ability to talk. So I just, I don't know how I feel about this. But I don't feel the same way that I'd ordinarily feel. I mean, if this was a whistleblower from within the Panthers organization that had nothing to do with that transaction, I'd feel differently. But this is apparently people who had the benefit of that transaction now reneging on their benefit, reneging on the deal. And it's, it's hard to separate, okay, it's good that these things are brought to light because this needs to be fleshed out, but... I'm not sure these are the right people to be fleshing it out. And they had their chance to flesh it out the right way. Open court. Both sides have a chance to delve into the details. And the truth comes out through the process of both sides presenting their view as to what did or didn't happen. All right, fifth down. Let's go through some of the other highlights of this one and only completely useless worst mock draft ever that we posted last night. I've still got the... Giants and the Browns doing business. I mean, still, there's one version. I'm not changing it. But the the way this thing was constructed and recommended to me, the thinking is that the Browns, as part of this, let's go out and, and, and wow people. Get pick one, get pick two. Pick one, Baker Mayfield. Pick two, Bradley Chubb. And by what would be a very minimal trade, because the Giants still get Saquon Barkley at four, and I think that's who they would take it to. The Browns get to move to two and say, yeah, we got one and we got two. We got Baker, we got Bradley. And I I think even if they don't do the trade, it's going to be Bradley Chubb at four. But this eliminates that risk, that possibility that the Giants bail out of two with someone who would come up to get Bradley Chubb. So Bradley Chubb to the Browns at two, Sam Darnold to the Jets at three, Saquon Barkley to the Giants at four, Quentin Nelson all the way to number five, with the Denver Broncos, resisting the temptation to draft another quarterback. you got Case Keenum for two years. Paxton Lynch is only entering his third year. I don't think John Elway's ready to give up on him. And also, no John Elway's in this quarterback class make it easier to slide away from Josh Allen. Then the Bills step in, trade up to the sixth spot with the Indianapolis Colts for Josh Allen. The slide ends at number six, and I think that's where he would have gone regardless of whether or not these these tweets had emerged. The only question is, will Bill's ownership say, we can't take Josh Allen now? And I don't think they will. I think there's enough time for them to get comfortable with Josh Allen in the aftermath of these tweets. And my guess is that at some point today, Bill's ownership got on a phone call with Josh Allen and had a conversation with Josh Allen about this situation. 
Derwin James, the Florida State safety, who has been compared to Sean Taylor to the Buccaneers at seven. Denzel Ward, the Ohio State cornerback to the Bears at eight. Roquan Smith, linebacker from Georgia to the 49ers. Now, look, the the recanting of the Reuben Foster allegations may change that. And I'm not going to do another version of the mock draft to reflect what came out last night, that the lawyer representing the alleged victim, and people gave me hell for saying alleged victim. Well, now do you know why I say alleged? The lawyer for the alleged victim in the case against Reuben Foster has recanted. So maybe there isn't as compelling of a need for an inside linebacker like Roquan Smith. Number 10, Mike McGlinchey, the Notre Dame tackle. 11, Josh Rosen to the Dolphins. And, you know, the Dolphins and Coach Adam Gase work very hard to say we're all in with Ryan Tannehill. We're all in with Ryan Tannehill. And they're going to be all in with Ryan Tannehill until they're not. And that's apparently going to be after this season if they take a quarterback in round one. Josh Rosen's slide ends at number 11. Tremaine Edmonds, the linebacker of Virginia Tech, to the Colts at 12 as a result of that trade with the Bills. Minka Fitzpatrick, he told me yesterday his window is 5-14. to 14. He's almost at the bottom of the window, 13 to Washington. Receiver DJ Moore to the Packers at 14. The talk of them trying to trade up, and they still may, for all I know they already have while we're doing this now. DJ Moore to the Packers if they stay put. A young weapon, the best receiver in the class for Aaron Rodgers. A little, a little makeup with Aaron Rodgers for dumping Jordy Nelson. But if they do trade up, I'm fascinated. How, how, what are they trying to get? Are they trying to get Quentin Nelson? Are they trying to get Saquon Barkley? I think it's Barkley. I think it's Nelson. I hope it's Barkley. Because they've, they've been crap at the running back position. One of the most bountiful positions in all of football, and the Packers haven't been able to figure that out. This would figure it out in a big way. Could you imagine? It would be like Brett Favre and Adrian Peterson. 2009, it would be Aaron Rodgers and Saquon Barkley, the equivalent of Favre and Peterson for however many years Rodgers has left in Green Bay. It's possible Rodgers continues at a high level longer than Barkley because that's the thing about a great running back. You get a lot of wear and tear, and maybe after four or five years, you're not the guy that you previously were. Jair Alexander to the Cardinals at 15, with Lamar Jackson on the board, I, I thought about, you know, sometimes I'd veto. Sometimes I'd make an adjustment. I thought about an executive decision there, but I went with Jair Alexander. Cardinals, two Cardinals. James Daniels, the Iowa center to the Ravens at 16. Lamar Jackson, 17 Chargers. Star power. Successor to Phillip Rivers and star power for a team that desperately needs it. Competing with the Rams. And sources close to me tell me the Chargers have already reached out affirmatively on their own to offer whoever they take at number 17 tomorrow afternoon for the PFTPM podcast. How about that? Thank you, Chargers. You can sponsor the podcast, too, if you would like. The PFTPM podcast presented by the Los Angeles Chargers. Deron Payne, Alabama defensive tackle to the Seahawks at 18. Vita Villa, defensive tackle Washington to the Cowboys at 19. Colton Miller. UCLA tackle to the Lions at 20. Marcus Davenport, UTSA defensive end to the Bengals, or as Chris Sims and Stats continuously call them, the Bengals. Taven Bryan, defensive tackle, Florida to the Colts at 22. That's another pick that was acquired in the trade down, beefing up that defense. Rashawn Evans, the linebacker from Alabama, slides down to 23. Patriots end the slide. 24, Mike Hughes, the central Florida corner to the Panthers. 25, Ronnie Harrison, Alabama safety to the Titans. Hayden Hurst, tight end from South Carolina to the Falcons, who need one. And then, boom, boom, two tight ends. Dallas Godert, tight end South Dakota State to the Saints. Leighton Vander Esch. He's got Steeler written all over him. Linebacker. They need a replacement for Ryan Shazier, the great Ryan Shazier. And it's great to see how he has progressed, but I don't think he ever plays football again. I don't think any doctor ever clears him to play football again. I love the fact that he's motivated to play football again, but I don't see it happening. Calvin Ridley, receiver from Alabama to the Jags at 29. Isaiah Oliver, Colorado corner to the Vikings at 30. Mason Rudolph, he's the guy the Patriots take at 31. Get that five-year option. And then Sony Michelle, 
the Georgia running back to the Eagles at 32. I know Mike Mayock has Darius Geis going there, but I, I don't know how much the Geis situation with the question that he claims he was asked and he really wasn't asked the question. That's the upshot of the league's investigation, but I think there's a sense that there's maybe a little bit of flakiness that can be unreliability with Geis. I liked him when we talked to him, but we have to be realistic. This is one of the factors that is being considered, and he brought it on himself. This wasn't leaked. This wasn't anything. This was him speaking on his own, and I think that he was just messing around. He was just screwing around, and this was the way he screwed around. All right. Oh, man. I gave notice as late as possible and still 93 questions here floating around on the draft day edition of the PFTPM podcast. Let's get right to it. PFTPM posse, not afraid to raise some potentially unpopular and controversial questions. What's the likelihood Reuben Foster or the Niners paid or otherwise convinced Foster's alleged victim to keep quiet? I don't think it was the Niners. And I don't know whether or not it was Foster. Look, Ben Roethlisberger... I'm convinced that the incident eight years ago in Milledgeville, Georgia, I'm convinced that he reached a settlement, a civil settlement with the alleged victim there and made that go away. And I think we always have to have that possibility on our radar screen that there was some sort of a payment that was made. And justice comes in many shapes, sizes, and forms. This gets back to what I was talking about earlier with the Panthers and Jerry Richardson. If someone wants justice and they choose to seek justice in the form of accepting a settlement and an agreement not to cooperate, voluntarily at least, then that there's nothing wrong with that per se. Here's the problem, though. If she's affirmatively lying about what happened, if she's lying about telling police that he struck her and punctured her eardrum, that's a problem. And there's some similarities between what she initially said to police and why she said it and some things we heard in the Ezekiel Elliott case. Remember the victim in the Ezekiel Elliott case? I'll ruin your career. The lawyer hired by the alleged victim in this case says that she had told Reuben Foster she'll ruin his career. In in the post-Ray Rice NFL... The people who are around these players, who interact with these players, who have the most intimate relationships with these players, have the power to create mayhem if they choose to do so. And we have to at least acknowledge that possibility. And I know that when people make fake accusations, it undermines the effort to get justice for those who have real accusations, but the the players who are accused of this behavior, if it's false accusations... I mean, those happen. False accusations do happen from time to time. And it's not an easy situation to resolve. So I don't know what happened here. And I don't know what will happen going forward. It's going to be very difficult, though, to find him guilty in the criminal justice system if the victim, the alleged victim, is telling two different stories. Because how do you prove anything beyond a reasonable doubt when there are two different stories being told by the alleged victim? And with the NFL, if she's determined to not cooperate, there's nothing the NFL can do to force her to cooperate. The only reason they got Ezekiel Elliott is because the alleged victim was sufficiently motivated to tell her story to the NFL. PFTPM Posse, does the timing of Gronk's Shark Week trolling of Bill have to do with him telling Bill he would play in 2018? Did the conversation with Bill possibly piss Gronk off to where he decided to troll him and keep this story going in the media? which we know Bill has to hate. Look, when Gronk says, I'm feeling super, super pliable, that is an F you to Bill Belichick. Because when you say pliable, you're saying TB12 method, you're saying Alex Guerrero, you're saying shove it up your ass sideways, Bill. So yeah, that was the big takeaway from that two-minute video. I'm feeling super, super pliable, man. It's a game changer. It's a difference maker. My Gronk impression sucks. But yeah, this dance continues. Is the next round of this fight Bill Belichick trading Rob Gronkowski during the draft? I'm interested. He's going to have a hell of a trip to the Bahamas. He's going to be swimming with the Sharks, and he's going to find out he's been traded to the Saints. Potentially. Terry Gensler wants to know, what did Sims do to have you laughing so hard at the end of Hour 1 today? 
Sean Alvishire chimes in and says, good question. All right, let me tell, let me, how can I delicately tell the story? <laughs> I'm, here's what happens. First three segments of PFT Live, I'm sitting where I sit for the PFT PM podcast. I'm in front of my computer screen in my office with headphones on and radio microphone dialed into an ISDN machine that makes it sound like I have a real radio studio. And I've got, I've got a, a pad on the wall that helps take away some of the hollowness that you'd have in a room. You know, I mean, I don't know. It's not a huge office, but you need to absorb some of the sound to make it sound like a real radio studio. That's where I sit for the first three segments. For the fourth segment, because there's a quick turnaround from the end of the radio segment and the start of the TV coverage, it's like a minute, minute and a half max. Instead of sprinting into position every day, I go upstairs during the seven-minute radio break, six, seven-minute radio break. I get settled in to... The spot where we sit, I put in the IFB, no headphones. We use an IFB. It's the little thing that clips to the back of your shirt. And it's, you know, you'll see it sometimes on TV. If you're watching any of the news channels or the sports channels, you'll see like somebody has it in. It's all jacked up and you can see the cord. It's got that old phone cord look to it. Remember when we actually had phones that had a cord? It had that that twisty, that twisty thing, twisty curly fry. I'm getting hungry now. So anyway, for the fourth segment of the hour, I'm I'm there. And I don't know how it came up while I was talking to Stats. What were we talking about in the fourth segment today? We were talking about something. It was always oh, Gronkowski. I think it was Gronk and him trolling Bill Belichick. And I don't know how it came up that Sims supposedly pays $300 for a haircut. One of the members of the PFTPM posse raised that yesterday, said to ask him about it. But see, I can see Sims. He's ready to go at 7 o'clock Eastern. And we start talking about the $300 haircut. Stats and I start talking about it. And I can see Stats then, too. So Stats and I are talking about the $300 haircut. And Sims is making facial expressions. First, it starts, he gives me the finger. But then we start talking about why it would cost $300. And he starts making these facial expressions like, stop talking about the $300 haircut. And then it takes kind of a, like, hey, get your mind out of the gutter turn. Like, maybe there's some sort of a happy ending attached to the $300 haircut. And that's when he starts, and it's funny, I wish, I mean, I kind of can sort of remember his facial expression, he was like, he was like, he was like shaking his head, don't do it, and also nodding like, yes, that's exactly what it is, and that just set me off. So, not a very good story. All right, but I, oh God, it was so funny. He was cracking me up with that one. Terry Gensler says, next time Dan Patrick has you on, can you find a way to name drop the PFTPM posse? I, I'm, I'm very deferential to Dan. I have like a big brother, little brother relationship with Dan. If it wasn't for Dan, I wouldn't be doing what I do now, including this right now. I never would have been able to get the reps to the point where I'd be comfortable doing it. So when I'm in Dan's space, I just answer his questions. I answer them quickly, and I move on. Terry Gensler is asking, cigar and whiskey for the draft tonight? Yes. Now, it'll be after the first 20 picks. It'll be after things start to slow down a little bit. But I'll be down in the barn. The four-screen experience. The draft on Fox, the draft on ESPN, the draft on NFL Network, and NBCSN. And I think it's going to be the Fox coverage on the main TV. There's four screens. Three of them are 55. One is 70. The main TV at the far right end, if you're facing the wall of TVs, that's the main one that we usually pick the audio for. I'm going to go Fox coverage there because I'm curious about how it's going to look, how it's going to sound, how it's going to feel. Hockey in screen two, ESPN screen three, sorry. And then I'll put the NFL Network draft coverage down on screen four, possibly hockey on screen four, depending upon who shows up. And I don't know who I was going to be here tonight. I made the open invitation to the PFT barn posse to come to the barn, but I think people have things going on. It's a weeknight. It's a school night whatsoever. So we'll see. Or whatever, not whatsoever. You get my point. Another question from the... PFT PM Posse. It's just PFT PM Posse, not PFT Posse team question. But Matthew Farley, we'll work with you. We'll we'll be patient. We're not going to call you out any more than I just did. 
what is your whiskey of choice? My whiskey of choice is whatever bottle is open. We've got, I don't know, 20 different bottles. 20? I'd say 20 bottles on the bar that was built down at the barn. And we have a habit of drinking the whiskey that's open until it's gone. And then another bottle gets open and we drink that until it's gone. Now we've got other non-whiskies. We've got whiskey, we've got bourbon, we've got scotch. I don't know the difference other than what bourbon's made in Kentucky. Scotch is made in Scotland. Is that right? I don't know. Whiskey is made somewhere else. So we, we've, we've consumed a lot of Crown Royal, all the various types and varieties of Crown Royal over the years. Woodford is a popular staple. Bullet Rye, which is obviously yet another different kind of brown liquor. Typically brown liquor. And when you cut it with Coke Zero, you really don't notice the difference. Lately, I've been finishing a bottle of Hellcat Maggie, an Irish whiskey that we buy when my niece Maggie visits because she thinks it's great. There's a whiskey named Hellcat Maggie. And that's actually pretty good. Cut with Coke Zero. I tried one night. Every once in a while, I'll try to drink it straight. Or what? what is it? What is it? Neat on the rocks, two stones. Man, it's tough. I'd rather just take a shot and be done with it. Like, I can do a shot of tequila, and I'm fine. But a little sip here and a little sip there, man, it's woof. Maybe Michael Scott was right when he put Splenda in it. Tastes like Splenda, gets drunk like scotch. Reverend Markworth, you never asked Sims about his $300 haircut. Well, I did, even though he wasn't on the air. I mean, we kind of cracked the code. He did admit that he does the $300 haircut. He, he said, so. oh, you know what? You had to be watching. I think it was the first two minutes of PFT Live on TV only. We didn't get back into it when we started the radio side. See, every top of the hour, there's a little two-minute nub where we introduce the hour and we're not on radio. And then there were three others during the hour. It's kind of like the look-ins that you'll see on Dan Patrick's show when you're watching it on TV. But they're just kind of hanging out and shooting the shit. We actually have produced segments. Like we'll do hockey highlights during the Stanley Cup playoffs. We'll do football highlights during football season. We'll talk about this story, that story. Whatever doesn't make it into the radio show, we'll find little spots for it in these TV-only segments. And it was the top of hour two, 7 a.m. Eastern, when I asked him about the, the haircut. And he admitted that that's one thing he does. He splurges on a nice haircut. There's a salon he goes to in New York City and spends $300. And he's like, gee, thanks for bringing it up. I said, well, I, it's not that we're invading your privacy you apparently have said something about it at some point. That's the only way someone's going to know that you spend $300 on a haircut. Terry Gensler, 14, did other owners ask Jerry Jones to pretend to be cordial with Roger Goodell to try and dampen the inevitable booing of him tonight? I don't, I don't think so. I think Jerry knows that he's getting booed no matter what. Jerry can say anything, and he's getting booed. Last year, they used Ron Jaworski as sort of a human shield for Roger Goodell on day two of the draft. And they cheered Jaworski and they booed the shit out of Goodell. It's inevitable he's getting booed. It's inevitable. Especially by a crowd that is mainly a fan base of a team that got screwed last year in its estimation by Roger Goodell with the suspension of Ezekiel Elliott. I'm still amazed they're not using the whole stadium. When I saw the shot of how they've carved that thing up, Use the whole stadium. I think that they know that if they would fill that whole stadium for Thursday night, there's no way they're going to fill it for Friday night. By Saturday night, it would be a ghost town. It would look like playing a, a high school game at, a, at an NFL stadium. But there's, I, I, you know, they need to start splitting it between facilities. They could have done Friday night or Thursday night at AT&T Stadium, fill it up. Friday night at the Star in Frisco fill that place up, and then day three in, in Cleveland slash Canton or in anywhere, Green Bay. Pick another city for day three, and the fans are going to be thrilled because by the time you get to day three, there's less of a sense of buzz, and there'd be no buzz whatsoever if it was the entire stadium. Or reconfigure it at night. Have a Thursday night configuration where it's the whole stadium. Have a Friday configuration where they cut it off, and then have a Saturday configuration where they... I mean, you can do that. How can you? Of course you can do that. You have a big enough crew. You can you can do that. All right. Nobody asked me. Nobody asked for my opinion as they were planning the presentation of the draft in Arlington, Texas. Andrew Yeh. 
In regards to Shad Khan and Wembley Stadium, can one person have an ownership stake in multiple teams? I, no. No. Remember when Jimmy Haslam owned a minority interest in the Steelers? Had to sell that. Now, for a short period of time, while he owned the Browns, he did still own his stake in the Steelers, but that ultimately got sold. Th- this thing with Shad Khan buying Wembley Stadium... It doesn't mean that the Jaguars are moving to London. I think it means the Jaguars will continue to have a presence in London, and don't be surprised if one game becomes two games. I think, at a minimum, this is a sign that we are moving toward the the shrink-wrapped collection of tiny cereal boxes where there will be eight games in London every year. I think we're moving toward that, a simulation of a full home schedule, with the possibility, and this is down the road, if... An impasse is reached when the Jaguars need a new or dramatically renovated stadium. It's very easy at that point for Shad Khan to say, I already own a stadium. I'm just taking my team to London, and you're giving me no choice. It's not my fault. I've done everything I can to ingratiate myself to Jacksonville, to show that I want to be in Jacksonville, and here we are on the brink of determining the future of this franchise, and the politicians will not make taxpayer money available to finance this stadium, I have no choice but to take my team to the stadium I already own. And the fact that he owns a stadium is going to make it harder to get taxpayer money because there will be politicians who say, why are we paying for this guy's stadium when he's already proven he can buy a stadium? We always say they should buy their own stadium. He already did. So I don't think this makes a move inevitable, but it complicates efforts to replace the stadium when that time comes. And we know with all these stadiums. The time comes where you either have to replace it or spend a load of money to improve it. Terry Gensler asks, are you and Mike Mayock on good terms? I remember him being on the show last year around draft time. Yeah, I think we're on good terms. I think we're on good terms. I mean, I don't think he'd say no if we invited him on. When he was on last year, I asked a question about something. One of my various hot takes or one of my leanings about, like, get rid of the draft, and obviously he wouldn't like that. And he said something to me about you have these crusades from time to time. Like, and I can't remember what he said, but it's like, man, crusade. There's like a negative connotation to that. Like, like I'm Don Quixote. I mean, I'm not making this stuff up just for the sake of, of, uh, you know, generating buzz. These are things I believe. It's a truly held belief. So you call it a crusade, you kind of demean it a little bit and make it seem like I'm tilting at windmills here. I think the points I'm making are good, valid points that the NFL, through its hype machine, have been able to get people not to pay attention to. So I was a little irritated by it, but, you know, just didn't have the occasion this year to invite him on. We got Josh Norris, the NBC Sports Draft Analyst. We had him on multiple times. And, uh, you know, it sets the conversation as it relates to the draft. So I like Mike, though. I like Mike. And I like the fact that he's been candid and genuine in his frustration about his inability to get one of the prime broadcasting gigs. I get the feeling that if he wanted to be one of the various Fox or CBS analysts as part of that hierarchy from one to seven, he would do it. He could get it if he wanted it, but he doesn't want it. He wants one of the premier spots because he had Notre Dame football and he had Thursday night football. And, you know, I wrote about this a few weeks ago. I mean, it's a candid assessment. I mean, the, 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 the knock on Mike is there was too much jargon. It wasn't relatable to the casual fan. And I don't think he cared. And I like that. I like people who are who they are and they don't care. But the problem is you got to care to be as successful as you possibly can be in those spots because you want the casual fan to not feel like they're being talked down to and you want the casual fan not to feel alienated. You want the casual fan to feel like they're learning something and that's why John Madden was one of a kind. He knew the game inside and out, but he knew how to communicate it in a way that allowed the casual fan to feel like they understood it, even if they really didn't. Reverend Markworth is not a Catholic priest. He's a Lutheran pastor. That, that, that came up yesterday because I was confused So as a Lutheran pastor, Reverend Markworth can get tapped on the shoulder from time to time and told you're moving to this parish, that parish, that parish, that parish. You move around the country. That came up in the confines of the discussion about the draft, how someone is sucked into the NFL machinery and told you're going to Seattle, you're going to Atlanta, you're going to New Orleans, you're going to Chicago without any input in where they go. 
My point is, when you're working for a bigger organization that truly is one organization, they will move you around from place to place. They have the license to do that. The NFL is 32 separate businesses. So that's how that came up. It's not one business. It's 32 separate businesses. It's an industry that is telling you which business you're going to work for. It's like taking a job, filling out an application, like when you're in high school, and filling out an application to work at a at a fast food restaurant, you don't get to pick Kentucky Fried Chicken or McDonald's or Burger King or Arby's or Taco Bell. They draft from the pool of local high school age talent as to who they want working at their restaurant. Now, of course, the difference is you're not going to have to move to a different town, but the idea is you should be able to pick who you work for and where you work. And when you've got 32 separate businesses, that's the way it should be. With the NFL, that's not the way it is. And also... Reverend Markworth wants to know if there'll be any special food tonight in the barn. No, it's just a standard barn food night. I'm 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 feeling I'm feeling Pizza Hut tonight. Gotta patronize the official pizza of the NFL on the biggest off season night of the NFL. So and you know, Pizza Hut, official sponsor of the PFTPM podcast. We will sell the sponsorship of the PFTPM podcast for a lot less, a lot less than what Pizza Hut has paid for the NFL hookup. Nikolai2118 wants to know what are the chances of a Le'Veon Bell trade during the draft? Extremely slim. Extremely slim. Because you'd have to finalize the trade in order... If, if we're talking about a trade during the draft that results in draft picks going to the Steelers that are then used, it's not just extremely slim. It's zero. You'd have to have Le'Veon Bell's signed franchise tender in hand in order to trade him during the draft and get it approved by the NFL. So it's not happening. Not happening unless Le'Veon Bell signs the tender and then the Steelers trade him to another team. And then the other team that picks him up is going to have to feel confident that they can sign him to a long-term contract. So that is not on the radar screen. Leapers 500, he won't. But if John Dorsey took two quarterbacks at 4-1 and one and both were mediocre to bust, wouldn't that mean the glue factory for old Dorsey? Yeah, you take two quarterbacks at 1-4 and four and they both suck, you got a problem. And the chances are that both are going to be prevented from reaching their full potential if they're splitting reps with another hotshot rookie quarterback. Recliner QB trying to ask questions while demoing software is tough. How do you listen to Sims slash whoever and respond appropriately while typing articles and stuff? I I mean, when when I don't actually work on articles during the show, during PFT Live, I monitor developments via email and Twitter and text during the show because there could be something that happens that is worth my attention. I also look at the outline that we share to see what's next. When I look over to the side, I'm mainly looking at what's next on the outline, looking at the guidance there. We have the show fairly heavily produced. When it's radio only, it's one topic to start the segment and go for the most part. When it's TV, we try to have a flow to it because they have B-roll. That's the industry term for highlights, stuff they put on the screen so you don't have to look at our ugly faces or Chris's $300 haircut, just so it's not a static shot. And, and you watch these shows that are simulcast. Look at Dan's show. They constantly have other things that they bring up on the air. They've got you know the graphics they make. They've got things they run across the bottom. They've got video that they show. So I'm, I'm always trying to make sure that we're moving toward what's next and I have in mind what's next because when Chris finishes talking, I need to know, do I follow up on his point or do I guide the thing in a different direction? I'm, I'm the guy who's guiding traffic and taking us to break and moving from one topic to the next. And then Chris and I will have our conversation. And sometimes we just break down into a conversation and forget about what's next. And we have the freedom. If we trip onto something that we really like, we just keep going in that regard. What's next? Leapers 500. We're getting a wait, We're already at an hour. My gosh, this hour flies. But it's the fastest hour of the day for me. This is even faster than radio and TV because there are no breaks. It just goes. Is it wrong to say that a quarterback's aptitudes past a bare minimum of required talent go in this order? One, reading defenses. Two, accuracy. Three, improvising to avoid the rush. And four, arm strength. I think it depends upon who you ask. But I think the ultimate skill, as we saw with Peyton Manning in 2015, when his arm was basically not much more than a pop gun. Knowing where the open receiver is going to be before the snap is the most important skill. That means not just reading defenses. That means mastering defenses to the point where when you walk up to the line of scrimmage, 
you look across the line and you know whether or not the play that has been called is going to work. And then what you do, if you see a defense that is going to be more inclined to stop the play that was called, what do you change it to? Do you change the entire play? Do you change a receiver's assignment during a play? Do you slide protection one way or the other to allow a play that otherwise would have failed to be successful? And anyone who plays Madden online, you know, it's one thing to play against, quote unquote, the computer. That's what we always called it. I don't know if they still call it that. I don't know if the kids still say, I'm playing against the computer. But now you play somebody who is God knows where online and man, that, that you, you have to do that same thing. Now, it's not nearly as advanced as trying to read an NFL defense, but you're reading that defense and you're trying to figure out, is the play that I called, is that going to work? And what can I audible to that will take advantage of what seems to be an effort to stop what I'm otherwise going to do? And you set them up that way. I mean, depending upon how good the opponent is that I play, a lot of times I'll call the same play and I'll see how they've lined up the defense to stop it. And I'll know whether or not it's going to work. And I've got three or four options that I will call off of that play if I think they are overloading and predicting that I'm going to do that thing. And boy, they walk right into it sometimes. And that's fun. So I think that brain power as a quarterback to walk up to the line of scrimmage, know what's going to happen, and then engineer things towards something that will work. That's how the Broncos got to the Super Bowl in 2015. I think they could have won Super Bowl 50 with Brock Osweiler at quarterback because that was about the defense completely stifling the Panthers. But they got there in part by finding a way to outscore the Steelers because on multiple occasions, the quarterback of the Broncos, Peyton Manning, got them out of bad plays and got them into good plays. All right. Uh, I want to get this thing posted and up so you can enjoy it before the draft. So I'm going to call it there. Thank you for all your questions. We'll do it again on Friday, another week, second straight week of five PFT PM podcast. Thanks for your time. We'll talk to you tomorrow. You can find the PFT PM podcast on Art19, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and Google Play. If you like what you hear, and you will, subscribe for automatic downloads. Leave a rating and review. That'll help new listeners find our show and push us up the charts. Search PFT PM for your evening update from Pro Football Talk.